We are talking about the book of Romans. Specifically, we're talking about how Paul is emphasizing that God is a keeper of promises. What's the R word that has to do with God being a keeper of promises? Righteous. God is a righteous God. He keeps his promises. He is good. He does what is right right according to the covenants that he's made and the promises that he's made and the truth that he's revealed. God does what is fair and what is equitable and what is good and what is loving. God is a righteous God. We've summarized every part as we've gone along and I thought, man, by the time we get to the end of Romans, if I go through that every week, <laughs> I probably won't have a class left. Everybody will be like, I'm tired of all the reviewing. And, and it was going to take way too long to do that. So I thought, let's start summarizing and kind of putting all the pieces together. So we, we went through the first four chapters, and here's how I might summarize the first four chapters. God displayed his righteousness this way. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, died for Jewish and non-Jewish sinners So both might be in covenant relationship with God and, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, inherit the world that was promised to Abraham. So God displayed his righteousness. This is the manifestation of how right and good and true and fair and keeper of promises that our God is, that he sent Jesus, the Messiah, to die for humanity. For Jews, yes. Did he keep his promises to the Jews? Yes. And is he breaking any sort of promises by also justifying the Gentiles? No, he's not. He's being the righteous God that he is in sending his son to die for both Jews and non-Jews because everyone was sinners so that both could be in covenant relationship with him and inherit the promise that God made to Abraham, which according to chapter 4 is the world. Okay, chapter 5, last week, this is what Matt said about verses 1 through 11, and I love it. He says, God desires for us to have access to him in this life and the next life, that Christian living is hopeful living. And one of the things I really like about what Matt said last week is that there's a focus both on the present and on the, the future. There's this hopeful aspect of what is to come. And and in the first few verses of Romans, and really all throughout the book, Paul does, he talks about salvation in a past tense. We have been saved because of what Jesus did. We are right now justified, right? We're We're made right. We're set right and we're set free. We're no longer the slaves that we used to be. We'll talk about that as we finish chapter 5 and get into chapter 6. We're no longer slaves. We're free. We're justified. We've been set free from sin and we've been set right with God. We're in a righteous relationship with him. He considers us righteous on the basis of our faith in Jesus, right? On the basis of our faith in Jesus, we are right now saved. We are We are in a right covenant relationship with God. But then there's also this future sense of salvation in which we have confidence that God will save us. Based on what God has done in the past, we have a confidence that he will save us in the future. I, I think about, when I read this section of Romans, I think about the Passover. 
And often we're told Jesus is our, is our Passover lamb. And the way that the gospel writers even paint the picture is that Jesus is our Passover lamb. That his blood is like the blood that was on the doorposts of the Israelites' houses. And that God's wrath, the angel of death, it went through, swept through Egypt was that, a, was that a good thing or a bad thing for God to come in and to kill the Egyptians? Was that good or bad? I hope we say good, right? You know, it wasn't a trick question. It is good, right? It's good. And if you were a slave that had been oppressed for 400 years and God came in and brought that empire that held you captive and abused you and oppressed you and murdered your children and God brought them to your knees, you would say that's a great thing. That is a good thing that God has punished these evil people that are doing evil, horrible things and have for centuries to the people of Israel. And so God comes in, but in order for God's people to be spared that wrath, blood covered their doorposts. And because that blood was applied, they were saved from the wrath of God. God said, those are my people. They belong to me. They're marked with the blood. I won't punish them. I will save them. So I think about that when I read uh, Romans chapter 5. So let me just read it. It won't be on the screen, but if you got your Bible, Romans 5, 1 through 11. Pay attention to some of these phrases. I don't want to spend too much time here because Matt did a great job last week covering it. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, so justified, both past and present reality, we have been and we are justified by faith and we have peace right now. We were justified, and right now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this current, lasting, abiding peace. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, do you remember we talked at the beginning of this series of lessons, and I know it's been a long time now, but we talked about Isaiah chapter 11. You remember? We talked about how sometimes we get into our head that the gospel is death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You know, we, we quote 1 Corinthians 15, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And yeah, that's the core of what, how Jesus accomplished his victory, but there's so much more to what that means. Gospel, euangelion, means victory. God setting his people free and God bringing the remnant of Israel back and God rescuing the nations and God reigning over all of the earth. And Isaiah chapter 11, that that the knowledge of God will cover the earth, fill the earth the way that the waters cover the seas. How much of the seas are covered with water? That kind of is a a trick question. (laughs) How much of the seas are covered with water? All of it. And Isaiah says, and in the same way, the knowledge of God will fill the earth. The prophets talk about that constantly, that the glory of God and the knowledge of God will fill the earth. And Paul is saying, it's our hope, because of what Jesus did at the cross, it's our hope that we, we, Jew and Gentile, we, everyone who has faith in Jesus, we, all of Jesus' people, his disciples, those that have been saved and justified by his blood as a gracious gift, we will share in that glory. We will be glorified with him. We will reign with him. 
we will share in that, that wonderful age and world that is to come. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And just like, just like the, the, the people that have come before that have suffered for the name of God, and that suffering is almost like a mark, you're God's people because you're willing to suffer for him. I know I'm God's person because I'm suffering for him. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. I love what Matt said near the end of his lesson. He said, if you hope in something, if you expect something that's probably not going to come true, you look foolish, right? You know, you look foolish. It's like, you know, I'd really like the Rangers to win the World Series this next year, but, you know, I'm not really counting. I don't want to make any bold statements, right? Because I'm, I'm not so sure that's going to happen. But there are some things in the world that people make bold assertions about. They're very confident about it. It's like, really? You really think that's going to happen? We know that the resurrection is true. We know that we will share the glory of God. We know all of these things will, tr- will, be, will come true. And even though we're suffering now, we're suffering in a way that leads to character and endurance and hope. A hope that will not be put to shame. We won't look like fools. When everything is said and done, we won't look like fools because we know we have confident expectation about what's going to happen because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He's our guarantee. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who's that? Jew or Gentile? Yes, right? It's both. It's all y'all. It's all of us. The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, now Paul's kind of switched a little bit. He was talking about the righteousness of God, and now he's talking about the the love of God. What's better, the righteousness of God or the love of God? That's a silly question, right? We sometimes put things at odds with each other that shouldn't be. Those aren't at odds with each other. God's love, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's mercy, God's grace, all of, all of it is all good and wonderful. And it's all, all of it has led to your salvation. God's righteousness is demonstrated in Jesus. God's love is demonstrated in Jesus. God was righteous God was righteous and right and fair and equitable to look down at a bunch of folks that were just shamefully broken. What is it that Jesus said on the cross as he's dying, talking about the people that nailed him there? Father, strike them dead. Is that what he said? No. Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. A righteous God looks down in love and mercy and says, this bunch of rebellious people, they've rebelled against me and they've broken the law and they've done what is wrong and wicked. I love them and I want to save them. I want to save them from themselves. I want to save them from their rebellion. I want to save them from the fate. I want to save them from the wrath that is to come. Yes, at some point, it's all got to be dealt with and it's all got to be 
taken away, but I want to save them. I want to fix them. I want to help them. That is God's love. And even though all of us, Jew and Gentile, have been rebellious against God in his love, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so is there any boasting in that? Can the Gentiles say, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's because God loves me a whole lot because we're really good people. We're way better than you Jews. Can the Gentiles say that? No. Can the Jews say, yeah, well, we were God's people first. So he really loved us more. That's why he sent Jesus to. No, there's no boasting in that. All of you were broken and rebellious, transgressing against God. And since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, if we've been saved currently and in the past, in the past and in the present, then doesn't that give us a confidence about the future? Our living Savior said, hey, when they were a bunch of broken people in rebellion to me, I love them and I want to save them. And now we're on his team and we're doing our best, although we're still messing up. We're on his team and we're saved and we're justified and we're part of his family. Don't we now have even more reason to have confidence that on the day of his wrath, that the angel of death will pass over us? Because we're covered by his blood? Because now our living God and Savior, our our Lord, saved us in the past and in the present. Don't we have confidence that in the future we will be saved from the wrath of God? Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation and that's it that's what this keeper of promises is all about reconciliation we talked about on Sunday about the temple right and about how a temple space was about a space that was reconciled it was heaven space and earth space that's reconciled it's God space and man space that's reconciled it's visible space and invisible space that's reconciled and that's what Jesus is doing Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. He's reconciling us to himself. And in the process, he's reconciling us to each other. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but when Paul gets, finally gets to the application portion of the, of the book, how you get along with each other. All about that. He's making this so, so, so abundantly clear. Jew, Gentile, y'all were all messed up, you were all broken, you were all fighting against God, you were all rebellious, you were all sinful, you were all guilty, you were all living in shame, all of you, and God, because God is so good and righteous and loving and merciful, he came and reconciled you to himself, justified you, made you in a right covenant relationship with himself, and brought you together with him. Now, all y'all are in the same family, (laughs) so now you got to get along with each other. See, because that, that's what happened when we broke things in the first place, isn't it? When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it wasn't just the relationship with God that was broken. It was even their relationship with each other. Do you remember? I mean, from the very beginning, they see God, they, they hide, and God says, hey, what are y'all doing? And Adam says, hey, listen, before you go any further, it was that woman, you know? And you gave her to me, by the way, just so you remember, you know? It was her. And, I mean, he throws her under the bus right away. And then God, when he... When he, he puts the curse on everything, he says, there's going to be enmity. 
between man and the ground and the animal and even between wife and husband. Your desire is going to be for him, but he's going to rule over you. There's now this friction and this brokenness in human relationships and relationships with God, even with the world itself. Everything needs reconciliation. And that's precisely what Jesus is bringing about. And and what we're saying as Christians is we're living now in anticipation of everything being reconciled. And so even even when we bump up against somebody else, we're going to do our very best to live as a new a piece of new creation, right? A new a new kind of human because of what Jesus has done for us. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Romans chapter 5 verse 12. So he says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning wasn't like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now there's a lot of stuff there. Let's kind of walk through it real quick. One thing I think a mistake that we make when we talk about sin and death, and we talk about the wages of sin is death, and we die because we've, we've sinned. Sometimes we, we, we kind of misunderstand, I think, what we're, we're saying by that. Sometimes we say, well, you know, I mean, even babies die, and so, well, did they do something wrong? Well, no, they didn't do anything wrong. They were just a baby, and, you know, and so we, we wonder, you know, then why did they die? And then maybe we say, well, you know, maybe it's not, maybe death isn't like, death death maybe it's a like a a metaphor or sometimes we say the phrase spiritual death I've never really understood that because that's not really a phrase that that the Bible uses but I I think that that when you understand what's being said I I think it'll make sense to all of us we understand that there we always say there's two inescapable things right there's two things that are certain what are they death and taxes right so we we understand that right so we understand that there's a bill that all of us have to pay, right? It doesn't mean when you sin, you die right then. That's not what that means, right? It doesn't mean when somebody died, oh, they did something wrong. You know, God struck them. No, that's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is the fact that humanity dies and stays dead because of sin. Humanity dies and stays dead because of sin. We know eventually we will die. And and the fear is that we will stay dead, right? That's the fear. And and there is this, and Paul puts it as if there's this ruler. He talks about death. and, And sometimes I think the way Christians talk about death isn't exactly biblical. We try to sort of take the edge off of it, and and the gospel does take the edge off of it, but it takes the edge off of it not by saying death really isn't such a big deal, it's really not so bad. It takes the edge off it by saying it is horrible, but Jesus has defeated it. It's a monster, but Jesus has slayed it. It's a monster that in the end, it is the last enemy to be defeated. Death is horrible. And the way Paul paints the picture here is that death is a ruler. He reigns. It's almost like he, it's, he's personified. Death 
is personified as a ruler, as this beast, as this king, as this evil dictator and ruler. And he reigns over all of humanity because we've sinned. Now, Adam was the one who opened the door, right? Adam was the one who opened the door and death came in. But he says, look, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because they were related to Adam? Is that why death spread to all of us? No. Why did death spread to all of us? Because we've all sinned. It's not like we can say, hey, well, I inherited it from Adam, you know. No, you didn't inherit it from Adam. He opened the door, and death came in to rule over humanity. But every single one of us, Jew and Gentile, have rebelled against God. And there is this reign of death that says, you belong to me. You belong to me. And anytime you might say, well, no, because I didn't, and maybe, and what? No, 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 no. Did you say? Yes, I said. Yeah, you belong to me. You belong to me. You belong to me. You belong to me. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. You see, death reigned. And then he talks about this, this period of time, because you've got, you've got Adam, and Adam, father of all humanity, right? And then later on, you've got, you've got Moses, who brings about the law. And so between Adam and Moses, there wasn't, there wasn't any law. Was there, was there sin? And death between Adam and Moses, even though there wasn't law? Yeah, there was sin. And sin and death reigned during that time. But here's the thing. When when there is no law, you can't really calculate sin, right? I mean, I was trying to think of a metaphor this afternoon. It may be a bad one. I don't know. But it probably is. But bear with me. I I like Westerns. I, I really like Westerns. I like new Westerns and old Westerns. And I just, I'm kind of fascinated with that time period. And, you know, ever since I was a little boy, I mean, just the, the thought of that. But, but you think about some town out West, you know, and I mean, we call it the wild West because there was a time period where there wasn't a lot of law and order, right? There wasn't, there weren't rules. You just, everybody did whatever he wanted to do. Now, was there still criminal behavior? Yeah. But in order to come and fix that brokenness and that criminal behavior and that sort of wild lawlessness, rules have to come in so we can kind of figure up what's, what's right and what's wrong. And Now, just because you got rules in place and you say, these things are wrong and you need to stop doing all that nonsense, don't do that, that's bad, don't kill people, don't do that, don't take stuff that's not yours, and you kind of put laws in place and you establish, does that stop all the bad stuff from happening? No, but it helps you count it and calculate it. And in order for it to get dealt with, it has to be counted and it has to be calculated. But, but make no mistake, between Adam and Moses, sin and death still reigned over all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile. Then he says at the end of verse 14 there, he says, Adam and, and Jesus are similar in some ways. That, and he's going to go on to explain that one man changed the whole world, right? One man changed the whole world. Adam changed the whole world. By sinning and rebelling against God, he introduced the monster of death, this ruler who would say to all humanity, you belong to me because we all followed in the footsteps of Adam. And then another man, another one man changed the world, Jesus. Now, he's going to explain before we take that metaphor too far, he's going to say, but there's a lot of differences because through one man, 
came trespass and condemnation, but through the other man comes the free gift of grace. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Many people died as a result of Adam's rebellion. Adam's transgression brought about the death of many. But through the act of Jesus, many are given a gift. We're going to talk about what that gift is in a second, but but many are given a gift through the one man, Jesus, just as many died through the act of the one man, Adam. Through the the result of one man's trespass was condemnation, and the result of the one man's gift is justification. So just as Adam opened the door for death to come in and reign, Jesus opens the door for a different sort of reign and a different sort of rule. We've talked about this, and and there's all different kinds of ways the, the New Testament puts it, doesn't it? Think about the light and darkness metaphor. You know, when you live in a world that's ruled by darkness, then somebody opens the door and lets the light shine in. Then it dispels the darkness. And we lived in a world where death reigned. Death reigned ever since Adam. Death reigned over all humanity. And there was no, well, you know, at least they were older. Or there, there was no at least. There was no, there was nothing. It was just as Ecclesiastes puts it, it's vanity. And even Solomon, who trusted God and loved God and knew God and knew God, somehow you have a plan in all of this, but I don't get it. And I don't understand. And a person could be really smart. I mean, they could be the wisest person. And in the end, they're going to die. And a person could be a fool, and in the end, they're going to die. And a person could be rich, and they're going to die. And a person could be poor, and they're going to die. A person could have all kinds of pleasure, or somebody could be miserable, and either way, they're going to die. What's the point? Right? Death reigned over humanity with no hope in the world. Why? Because we rebelled against God. This was the path that our family and us individually have all chosen. But Jesus opens the door to the reign of grace. We'll keep reading. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says. Those who receive the abundance of grace and receive the free gift of righteousness, that's covenant rightness with God, covenant relationship with God, they will do what? They will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Goes back to the first part of the chapter, doesn't it? Share in the glory of God. We will reign in life, not in death, but we will reign in life. We will live and reign with Jesus because of the gift 
that he gives. And in his gift, we receive an abundance of grace. And we will reign with him in life. That's good, isn't it? For a bunch of dead bones. Don't get me wrong. The Bible can talk about death as a metaphor. Because even the Bible will say, before Jesus, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Paul says in Ephesians. But but that's not like spiritual death. Again, that's not a Bible phrase, spiritual death. A person who has no hope, a person who's going to die, and as far as they know, they're going to be like Rover, dead all over. They're going to die and stay dead. They are dead. They're condemned to die and stay dead. That's a hopeless, dead state. But in Jesus, he opens the door. And gives the gift so that through him we can receive an abundance of grace and reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. So do you see sort of the comparison and contrasting that Paul is doing with Jesus and Adam? He's saying, yes, Jesus is like Adam. He's the one man that changes the world for everybody. But he's very much different than Adam. Because through that one man's act, everybody ended up, because of our own sin, we can't blame Adam, but through that one man's act, we all ended up condemned to die. But through this one man's act, we all have the opportunity to receive an abundance of grace and reign in life through him. Now, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now listen, again, to go back to everything he's been saying, it says one act of what? Righteousness. Again, Isaiah chapter 11, this is the type of savior Jesus is. He is a king and a judge who judges righteously. And you would expect, going back to our Old West metaphor, right? I mean, it's a lawless town. And let's say there's some people in the town. And they say, yeah, but we're pretty good people. You know, and, and we've been promised. Somebody's going to come and, as they always say in those Westerns, clean up this town, right? You know, somebody's going to come and clean up this town. And they're going to take care of us. You know, they're going to come and clean up this town. But then when law and order start to come, well, you know what? Those people that thought... They were going to be on the good side of everything when, when everything came to get cleaned up. Well, they broke the law too. And eventually, the counting of all the crimes ended up making everybody guilty. And now everybody's in prison, and there's this mean old sheriff that's in town, and he's got them all locked up. The whole town's locked up. Now, now who are the promises going to get kept to? Who, who gets to be the beneficiaries of all the promises that were made to the citizens of this town? They're all locked up, all of them, on both sides of it. Everybody's locked up. And all the promises that he's going to come and he's going to set things right. And they thought, yeah, you just wait. He's going to come and you're going to be in trouble. And we're all guilty. And so he comes and what does he give? Pardon. 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 And he says, listen, if you trust me, you all go free. If you trust me and you walk with me and you do things my way, you all go free. I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to atone for your sins. And you all go free. And then some people get out and then they say, yeah, but that's not fair. We're not as guilty as that. Wait, that's not fair. Stop it with that stuff. It is fair. You were all guilty. 
I can come and I can bless whoever I want to. Do you see some of Jesus' parables in that? Jesus gets to pardon whoever he wants to. And if somebody gets forgiven and gets pardoned, and then they go out and they start choking their fellow servant and say, pay me what you owe me, do you not get it? What has been done for you? As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus' act of righteousness, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will will be made righteous. So whose obedience is it that makes you in a right relationship with God? His, right? His obedience. Do you remember Isaiah 53? We talked about this a few weeks ago in our sermon, The Suffering Servant. That really, it was, it was Israel's job to be that servant. Go into the world and bring the nations to me. Suffer in order to do my will. But they weren't capable of doing that. They didn't fulfill that mission. But Jesus did. And in his obedience and in his righteousness, he suffered so that everybody who trusted in him could go free. Verse 20. Now the law came, this is an interesting verse, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin is increased, grace abounded all the more. Do you you remember what we said earlier that when there was no law and for the people that didn't know the law, I mean, they were still sinning, right? They were still guilty, they they were still in bondage to sin and death, but sin isn't counted where there is no law. It can't be. And then when the law comes in, and Paul's going to explore this as we go throughout the rest of the book, sin increases, right? Then we get to see it kind of magnifies, it intensifies all of the sin. And so the sin kind of heaped up in Israel even, because that's where the law existed. But, but if there's a Wild West town where there's all kinds of criminality going on and the law comes in, even though it convicts wrongdoers of wrongdoing, it has to happen in order for that sin to get dealt with, right? And even if what's going to happen is the judge is going to come in and he's going to pardon everybody, it has to be dealt with first. And the law, it intensified, it increased the sin, it, it brought it out, it brought it to the surface so that it could be dealt with at the cross. And grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me summarize it this way. Maybe. My screen shows the next screen. Let me summarize it this way. It's not on your screen, though. Through the trespass of Adam, the whole world suffered under the reign of death. Through the trespass of Adam, the whole world suffered under the reign of death. But through the righteous act of Jesus, grace now reigns. And the result is life for the age to come. When Paul says, anybody says in the New Testament, eternal life, that's what it means. Life for the age, life for the age to come. Through the one act of Adam, that trespass, death reigned over humanity. And through the one 
righteous act of Jesus in giving his life for us, now grace reigns. Grace reigns. And isn't that where you want to live? Under the reign of grace? You can live, your choice. You can live under the reign of sin and death or you can live under the reign of grace. And if you live under the reign of grace, you will live now and in the age to come. We're gonna talk about next week, Romans 6. What does that look like when you live under the reign of grace? Let's pray. Most Holy Father, Father, we are overwhelmed with gratitude when we stop and we think, about the righteousness of Jesus and your righteousness that has brought us righteousness, that has brought us into a right covenant relationship with you. Father, help us to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Help us, Father, to live out of sheer gratitude to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.